Welcome to another edition of our podcast, Talking Round North Cyprus, where we chat about anything and everything that is connected to the TRNC. We'll hear in this edition from a lady new to the island who has an extraordinary story to tell. And we'll also hear from my co-presenter, Roger Barra, who rather unusually has just endured the coldest march in the TRNC that most people can remember. Well, Roger, I've just come back from a week in Jersey where it was 19, 20 degrees and I was sitting on the beach drinking Prosecco. Um, you wearing your duffel coat. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi, there. We, we have not approached those temperatures in the whole of March. Now, TRNC is not unused to little cold snaps, but usually they last three or four days at the longest a week. This has been virtually the whole of March. And just this final weekend, the day the clocks go forward, it's getting daytime a little bit back to normal. And I think we hit 20 degrees today for the first time in March. So very, very unusual. The Met Office here say that this is the coldest March for 46 years. So for most of us here that, you know, have moved here over the last 20, 30 years, whatever, it's certainly the coldest March we've ever known. And my goodness, are we glad to be out of it. I bet you are. I bet you are. Yes, there's nothing like a bit of sunshine, I have to say. And one of those things is that, you know, when it is uh, a bit uh, sort of drab, you know, you can cheer yourself up with a little little bit of Chardonnay here and there, a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc. But have I read that um, cost of alcohol is going up? Roger, what's going on? It is shooting upwards. I mean, everything's going up like it is mm. everywhere all around the world. But the government, in their infinite wisdom here, have decided that alcohol is a luxury item and as such it's going to be taxed heavily now i don't know about you and me but i've never thought of wine as luxury it's to me it's a blooming necessity and always has been but the tax for instance on a bottle of wine i don't know why i'm laughing because i just want to cry has gone up from four teller to 20 teller <gasps> that is a five fivefold increase in tax now once wow. the distributor has then put their bit extra on and once the restaurant or or, or the store has put their bit on uh, some stores are now just doubling the price so where a bottle of okay it used to be really cheap but nobody's arguing about that but say a bottle of wine was 75 teller you can pay up to 150 teller now for the very same uh, no. bottle of wine. Not everywhere, but some I've seen that in some shots. Now, the, the headlines in today's Cyprus today is unbelievable hikes in alcohol <laughs> duty because beer's gone up as well. There are huge worries here from businesses who, Sarah, you know, just got over mm. uh, particularly those in the tourism trade they've just got over two lockdowns and looking forward they were hoping to a you know a bumper tourism year and they're saying well this is going to put people off from buying these yeah. huge hikes every nobody's bothered about you know alcohol going up in price because everything else is going up but the rate at which it's got up in one fell blow businesses here are really worried and the government to say oh come on it's still cheaper than down south not that much cheaper now and in fact it could be a parity now on prices between the greek side and the turkish side on alcohol prices and that will mean that of course a lot of greeks won't come over and get and, and yeah. shop over in yeah. the north and and it could what what some business leaders are saying this could be actually counterproductive but for the likes of me 
Oh, my goodness. You know, it's not good news at all. I did see on the shelves a couple of bottles at pre-increased prices, which I grabbed. Uh, And, of course, everyone is doing that all over the island. And some supermarket shelves are actually empty in the alcohol department for that very reason oh my goodness and uh and then there's also reports that some markets are taking the alcohol off the shelves until such time as they can charge the new price really mm. yeah so you know it's but you of- know what it's it's so hard for businesses here sometimes you can't really blame them for doing whatever they can to try and make a few bob things yeah. are very very tough at the moment yeah, I guess so. Yes, I can understand them, you know, sort of profiteering, if you like, on 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 this. And of course, you know, it's at a time as well when uh, certainly here in the UK, and I'm guessing it's it's happening there as well, cost of electricity just skyrocketing. I mean, we're looking we're looking at things like that. So so how is it there? And again, sort of just just going over the top. Again, you're not talking about an increase, you're talking about a massive increase now as we said in a previous podcast the last couple the first 250 units that you use of electricity stay at the rate that used to be at uh, 98 kurush per unit but once you pass the 250 units which most people who use aircon are going to use at least that halfway through the month i'll get to that period it's going up from that one teller to 2.7 that's two tellers, 70 kurush. That's nearly three times as much. Once you get to 500, it goes up phenomenally again and again. So the more you use, the more it's going to be. And in the next two or three days, people are going to get their first bill at the new rate. And we're just waiting to see what the reaction is. Because wow. certainly for local people, this is, this is going to batter their mm. finances. Mm. Absolutely batter. And, you know, we're in a country where you cannot not use electric either in the winter where it's been so unseasonally cold and you know what in three months if you don't use your air con you're going to fry so it's really really difficult and and it makes it sound very negative as far as the trnc concerned but i mean this is the reality at the moment yeah i mean i guess you know looking looking on a positive note uh, as i say i've just come back from jersey and it was like pre-pandemic there were no masks um, on the flights and that sort of thing so more and more people traveling now more and more people feeling confident about traveling so I'm guessing that you know maybe that's that's a plus for for the TRNC that the forthcoming summer season will be looking a little brighter still you know it'll have have visitors that it hasn't had and hopefully bring money back into the economy well we have to wait and see but interestingly as we know uh President Erdogan over in Turkey uh, has not banned Russian flights. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Russia's first, the, the major holiday tourist resorts for Russians are in Turkey. Right. And then, of course, there's a spin-off to come to northern Cyprus. Now, because the Greek side's in the EU, no Russian planes can land at Larnaca or Paphos. So there is an argument to say a lot of Russians are going to come to North Cyprus because Turkey and North Cyprus are two of the very rare places in the world they can go to. But you've got to ask yourself how many Russians with frozen bank accounts, you know, are going to be able to come over. Yeah. And and, and we desperately, desperately need a great tourist season. We really do. When I say we everybody 
in the TRNC needs a good season, none more so than the local tourist industries. You know, they're desperate. And so we've got to keep our fingers crossed and see what happens. It's difficult, isn't it? It's a sort of moral dilemma, really, because, you know, you do need the tourists, as you were saying. To be fair, it's not the Russian people that have started no. with this. You know, you, 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 Russian people are the whole of genuinely, genuinely nice people. And we know Russian people who live in, to, in the TRNC mm. as well, don't we? So it's but it's difficult, isn't it? When it's sort of politics playing, playing with it all. Just a watching brief, but hopefully, hopefully more people will be able to uh, to get out there and you say sort of boost the local economy. So anyway, let's uh, let's get on to our guest for this episode. And Rod, incredibly, somebody you didn't meet in a bar. <laughs> I know. There's always a first, isn't there? Now, I met the lovely Denise Wise in a coffee bar. Oh, um, right. That's because alcohol is so it, expensive. <laughs> no, this was before the rises. And interestingly, we met. She's a friend of a friend. So I was introduced to her as there was a power cut in this coffee house. So we couldn't have coffee because <laughs> there was nothing to heat the water. So guess what? You had to <laughs> drink wine. You had to drink wine instead. <laughs> now, Denise Wise is an extraordinary lady with a story that you're going to hear very shortly. And she's an author. She's a singer. She's a songwriter. And unusually, most people we interview have been in the TRNC for a long, long time. But Denise, this was her very first visit. So when I said to her, look, you seem to have an interesting story. Will you talk to the podcast uh, ab- about your life and, and about stuff? And she immediately said, yeah, no problem at all. So this is our conversation just a couple of days ago. First of all, we, we normally talk to people on this podcast who have come here on holiday, uh, come for a visit, fallen in love and either stayed or moved here eventually. Right. Now, you are at the end of just your first three-week vacation mm-hmm. in TRNC. Those three weeks, the coldest on record, at least for the last 50 years or so. And I just wonder if that's tainted your opinion of this island. What are your initial impressions? Not at all, because it's gorgeous. And um, I found the view stunning, you know, just driving along the coast or we have been up to Karnak Castle and that was the day it opened after the snow. It had been closed for two days. And it was a stunning, sunny day. So despite the, the patches of snow on the side of the road, we had a marvellous time. We got right up to the top and I did a 360-degree video. And I've just been taking loads and loads of uh, footage, um, things that I will use for my own podcasts or um, various bits and pieces when I get home and I, we've just been choosing the right days to go out to see scenery and then having lots of lovely cheap but gorgeous meals in the meantime. You're based in Norwich uh, in the UK, what are you doing here? Well I'm very lucky I've got a landlady and she actually has two homes so she lives here for six months And I live in her house in Norwich, in Norfolk, 
for permanently, but she's there for six months of the year uh, during the summer. And this arrangement's worked perfectly for us for the last sort of five, five and a half years. And I've never had a chance to come out here because, to be honest, I was travelling to quite exotic places before the lockdown. I went to South Africa, Egypt, Mexico, Costa Rica, and uh, Jackie had always invited me, but I was, oh, I'm too busy, I'm sorry, I'd love to come, but... And then we had the lockdown, so this is the first time I've travelled in two years. And I just, well, I'm loving it, and I, I definitely want to come back. In fact, I've actually got plans and I've spoken to Jackie about it to come back here in June because I really as you say haven't experienced uh, the warm weather at all and I had to buy loads of new clothes at the market to keep warm (laughs) (laughs) but I've still only spent just over a hundred pounds and that includes all my meals out my clothes sweets Turkish delight of course and all the added extras, and and so that sounds amazing to me. You know, I definitely want to come back. You mentioned lockdown. During that lockdown is when when you it appears from what I've seen on social media, you started writing or continued to write music and lyrics. Tell us about that. And you've mm. got a band with the most extraordinary name. I have indeed. It's a peaceful cacophony. <laughs> That's a bit of a mixture of my bandmate and I because we would have great creative periods which were peaceful but very um, exciting. And then we'd have cacophony because we're very, very different from each other. So in some ways we sparked it off, each other off in a good way. In other ways, you know, it was a bit chaotic and that's another meaning for cacophony, isn't it? Mm. But uh, hopefully the actual music isn't a cacophony because that... It's it's alt rock, you know, it's not the most peaceful music all the time, but we do have some ballads and and some nice songs we're still working on. But we went crazy. We wrote 11 songs during that first year of the lockdown. We were in the same bubble. And now we're basically mastering and producing them. So they're coming out slowly. I've got a fourth one coming out in the next couple of weeks. And... um, I decided, right, while I'm here, I'm going to take some of the beautiful scenery and record myself singing. And I've I've just got a, a mobile phone at the moment. So I've been out on the beach in the days that were actually warm enough and sunny enough. And I've recorded a lot of uh, footage and sent that to David. And he does the videos as well. So we're like a little cottage yeah. industry. He, he plays bass, drums, guitar. He's jack yes, of all trades. that's right. From you what know. I've heard, a master of most mm. of them. And David's interest started when he was five. And he, he um, his father played uh, jazz. He was a jazz musician and did some quite big gigs. But he let him play drums from when he was five years old. And then always encouraged him because he was crazy about music and he still is and he's he's basically gone down the 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 route of kiss and um big bands like you know the sex pistols he was very much into uh, post-punk as well and then it's gone through the years he's been obviously a session musician for many big bands but but also been in smaller bands and just just had a great career you know what about you what's your history or did you just start doing this during lockdown well my parents ran a folk circle when I was very young up in Scarborough 
then they divorced when I was seven. So although I, I didn't um, hear them pick up a guitar or sing again since then, it was in my blood, you know, that sound. Mm -hmm. And some people think I sound a bit Celtic, but I do like the folk music. Then I was working in London and in the music industry, and that's where I met lots of interesting people. Uh, music royalties, you know, we had a small office up in Marlborough, Marylebone, sorry, High Street. And that's, you know, really where I got to understand how to co-write with guitarists. I didn't play much myself, but my strengths, the lyrics and uh, the singing. And so, you know, since then I've known how to reach out to people and, and organise things. And it's got, I've got more and more independent and and I've written a song here, actually, on my my iPhone. You've sent me the lyrics. It's yes. called Shadow Play. Yes. You wrote it on the beach. That's T right. Tell me about that. Well, as you know, I'm staying right on the beach, overlooking the beach um, in Caesar Beach Resort. And I had my shadow following me along. It was the sunset. And I was just walking back home with the sun behind me. And I noticed it was shining on the water. And it was literally the lap of the waves was just coming up to where my feet, shadow feet were. So I started to play with my shadow and did a video which has only got my shadow walking along like Jesus walking on the water almost, you know. And then I, I took some other shots of the shadow. And then I thought, you know, I've been working a lot on my own personal dark bits and pieces uh, psychologically and mentally over the the last few years particularly with lockdown as we all have been struggling and and wondering what's going to happen and so I thought wow you know I could just have this as a an innocent song about shadows or I could talk about something more deeply and that's what I do with a lot of my songs unless I explain what it's about people wouldn't necessarily know because I write maybe an uplifting song a poppy or um, you know even a rock song and you know if people are interested to know I'll, I'll explain what the deeper incentive was or the inspiration was for writing it but most people just want to enjoy the music don't they so what do you do you've got your lyrics mm. and um what do you do now do you write the melody does david write the melody how does it work Melodies are my strength, actually, and he has given me a, a very nice compliment and said, you know, your songs are so catchy. So I think that is something that just comes naturally to me. And I just tend, even though I haven't really got an instrument that I work it up on, I just literally come out with them and record my voice onto uh, my phone. And I used to, it used to be a dictaphone in the early days, you know, I started writing. Yeah, I remember those. 2004, when there weren't any mobiles. So um, dictaphone and then obviously getting together with a musician who could play guitar and just work out the chords, because I could, didn't even do that. So lazy. But these days, it's easier for me to, to just put everything on my MacBook Air. I can take it around with me because it's so light. And now I've got my own proper mic and um, set up. I can, you know, record myself, put my own videos from the beach here into the laptop and just mix it all together. And I have actually finished the um, video in two days and sent it to David already, and he'll be looking at that. Um, but then the 
poem we just mentioned, which turned into a song. I haven't got the melody completely, but it's going round in my head. So no doubt one morning I'll wake up and it'll be there. (laughs) That's how it happens. Your partner compliments you on uh, your melody writing. Something that I've heard on your Facebook site is a song called Set Me Free. Now, before you tell us uh, what it's all about, let's just listen to it. that was set me free peaceful cacophony uh, and that was uh, written by denise who's with me now and uh, denise what's the song about and, and what was the inspiration behind it i did like working in media in london but at that particular time i had i was working for deloitte which is one of the big four you know financial institutions in the world and i just being creative my spirit was being drowned by working in these grey offices and, you know, the dry atmosphere. And so the song was actually about me wanting to get out, you know, let me free from this, get me out of here. (laughs) Excellent. You were talking earlier in our conversation about some dark times, and I want to now talk about the book you've written, Rising from the Ashes of Jehovah's Witnesses. And it occurs to me, although I haven't read the book yet, although I will, that you must have been a member. And I want to know, I know you're not now, and I want to know why you became involved and how. My mother was Church of England and we went along to Sunday school. But when she got divorced and my father left, she decided that it wasn't giving her the answers to her questions. And she wanted a black and white type of belief system by the looks of it. So the witnesses, of course, would come and call on her and study the Bible with her. But she did look at other religions, but she ended up converting, you know, to becoming a Jehovah's Witness when I was 10. And my sister was uh, eight. And so really, although we weren't raised from birth, it was very much prescriptive and we didn't have a choice about whether we wanted to go to the meetings or not you know when we were teenagers and and so therefore I went into becoming a full-time minister which entails preaching for 90 hours a month on the doors you know we're the those annoying people that come and knock on your door and try and sell you the at the time the watchtower and the awake magazines what was that like well, I quite like talking <laughs> and I quite like being on my soapbox as a personality. So that hasn't that was easier for me to do than a lot of other people. My sister really hated it, I think. And she didn't really like 
admitting to her friends and at mm. school and so on that she was a witness. Whereas it's, I've been one of those people, not a loner, but certainly someone who will say, well, this is what I believe. And, and did you actually believe in the religion or do you feel, looking back, that you had, in fact, maybe been brainwashed to some extent? I absolutely believed it, 100%. You know, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to feel as enthusiastic about preaching to people and bringing people in, in fact, um, unless I, I really believed in what I was saying. But there's always an answer for everything if you, if you, the, the, with the Bible, if you take it literally, as the witnesses do. You know, they always had an answer and they'd always refer back to Scripture. And it seemed logical at the time. And, you know, really it doesn't occur to you that it might be controlling because it just seems like a safe haven. Mm. And that's how they, they obviously hold the carrot out on the stick to people who are coming in. And, you know, it's going to be a paradise if you follow all the rules and you don't, you're a naughty, not a naughty boy or a naughty girl, you'll be saved and everything's going to be fine in the future. And I just started not to have doubts as such, but I think with mind control, if you try and persuade somebody up front that what they believe is wrong, they'll only dig their heels in harder. And that applies to any kind of mind control. So I was having psychotherapy, really felt that my marriage, you know, needed to some work on it. And she was obviously able to rebuild my sense of self in a very subtle way without approaching it from the front and after two years I think I read a, one book that really just was the, the um, epiphany and it was something to do with um, Adam and Eve and you know just all the blame that's laid on women um, for eating the apple and being the original sinner and then really how a religion has formed uh, Christianity and uh, obviously the Quran holds the first four books of the Bible, the same story uh, with Adam and Eve. And I just saw red, you know, I just thought, patriarchy. And I don't want to be told what to do anymore. Why should I? And can I ask how old you were at this time? What part of your life this was? Um, 32, mm. yeah. And it does take a long time that was a process but it seemed like a sudden thing and I've called it a paradigm shift. I guess people can experience paradigm shifts in lots of different ways. Some people have a near-death experience or, or an experience that shocks them and they think I need to change my whole life now. Other people might be on the psychedelics or you know having an experience and realise that this isn't all there is to life, you know, this humdrum existence with lots of rules and regulations. And so for me, freedom suddenly became the most important thing. And I sacrificed a lot. Can you take that a bit further? What kind of sacrifices are we talking about? Well, as an, as a, the baptised witness and also one, you know, that was a pioneer, I had to be an example. And that would mean not... Um, questioning anything at all 
and you knew that if you left and that you didn't agree with the teachings that you would be labelled as a disfellowship person and also an, an apostate and a sort of old-fashioned word for that would be heretic so they take it to the point using scriptures about treating ones that have lost their faith and gone away um, as the tax collector in Jesus' time. And if you know anything about how they treated the tax collectors, they would walk on the other side of the road if they approached. So that's really, um, they've taken it that step further and said no social contact with your family or anybody who's still a witness because of your influence. So are you saying you've lost your family through this? I am, indeed. Well, that... uh, side of the family you know that are still witnesses which would be you know my mother and my stepfather but there were three of us siblings who have all left and roughly around the same time but for different reasons and I think everybody has their own way of waking up if you like to the fact that they don't have any free personal freedom and I really want to draw into this discussion the fact that I feel it's happening to us now on a global scale because I recognise, and that's what I talk about in my book, some of the main flags that you might be in a cult of some kind, occult thinking. Mm. And at the moment, you're being, we're being ostracised if we don't agree with the mainstream narrative about things, whatever that might be, but in particular to do with health at the moment, and even war, it's causing divisions and you feel that there isn't that freedom of thought. And because I've been through all that now, 27 years ago, and analysed it to death and had therapy and counselling and all sorts of things to overcome my, you know, holding back and my trauma from my early childhood, I would say I'm very, very sensitive to the signs and triggers Mm. that we're being controlled and told one thing and that might not actually match up with what's was actually going on and that was very much a theme that I found out since leaving the witnesses what was going on behind closed doors was uh, the way they deal with paedophilia for instance and keep it as the, you know the priests I know are, are entrusted with a lot of information with confession and they don't go to the police And in some ways, the witness elders that use these um, opportunities to talk to the people that where things have been going on and they've come out, they very much want to deal with it behind closed doors. And that's led to a massive uh, issue which is coming out in the courts in big cases. And also in Australia, they had what was called, we nicknamed the ARC, but it was the Australian Royal Commission delving into all forms of paedophilia in Australia, but the witnesses were brought to task, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of cases. And it had all been kept quiet and not reported to the authorities. And this will continue to happen unless, unless the governments actually make it the law to report anything that happens to the police. And this is only changing slightly at the moment. But Your experiences uh, in your life, how has that affected your faith in general? 
It's interesting because I was really angry with God and didn't even think I believed in him for the first three years after I left because I felt I'd, I'd really lost my youth. You know, I had to, we had to be um, celibate until we were married. So all my 20s, I was celibate and uh, got married when I was 28. And then there were lots of other things we were discouraged from doing. So I, I felt really angry about not having a career, not going to college and or uni. And then, um, you know, just just being taught to believe that everybody outside of the religion was bad and, and you'd, you know, to experience really horrible things if you went out there. And of course, it's been exactly the opposite. I've had a great time. I've made some fantastic friends and I've done lots of creative projects as well. I've just found my voice and my creativity and and it's just been amazing, you know, I've really loved it. And have you found God again? Yes, well I have found my own form of spirituality, absolutely, after I had my three year cooling off period. <laughs> but I've never wanted to be part of an organised religion, of course. Mm. But I would say there's so much value in it, I mean, Christianity as such as an organisation, every re organised religion will have its failings, but I do feel that Jesus himself had lots of amazing qualities and things to teach us, and as have many other gurus over the uh, centuries, you know. And so I do choose, pick and choose what I, I feel are really good principles and uh, ethics and also joy, you know, just being, knowing, I feel, that this isn't all there is. And if there is a third world war, you know, I think if you have a belief that this human life we're living now isn't the end of it all, mm. I think that helps people to cope mm. um, with the thought that, well, you know, there's something else and... But you really think in this day and age that religion is still important. I mean, most people understand why religion started off, but that was thousands of years ago, and a lot of it was ignorance. Mm. Knowing what we know today, would you say that religion is still important? Absolutely. I think that community is really important, and religion can be a way of, of community uh, where you meet, and, you know, you, if you have any troubles or problems, you know, the that community is there for you and that was something I grew up with and that's one of the good things I think that I enjoyed about my my childhood and my youth was that we just had lots of friends and we used to get together and have big gatherings and and then you know my parents obviously they've got people that will help them now in their old age and the value of that of some a tribe is how it's described isn't it people that do believe the same thing I think it's good for your psychology as long as it doesn't become controlling yeah. can I ask how is it difficult to relate all the things that you wish hadn't have happened if you like or is it therapeutic to a certain extent to talk about it well I like my soapbox so I have enjoyed the process of talking about it because Originally, before I started writing the book, which would have been 17 years ago, 
people were saying, oh, you should write a book about this story. It's so unusual and never heard of this and show how you grew and changed and, and now where you are now. And, and I thought, well, actually, I was more keen on the music, but yeah, I should really write my story. And then it took me a long time. And I would say I went into a depression for about seven years and had got writer's block. And then when I moved up to Norwich, it was so peaceful and so different from London. So not as many distractions, obviously, we used to go out partying and drinking. <laughs> and so I finally knuckled down and finished the book. And then I started, in the meantime, I'd started writing another book about Norwich and the beautiful medieval architecture. And then some of the stories really stood out to me. And I thought I'd like to write about that as well and my experiences here. And so I would say, yes, it's just been um, an unfolding where I've now understood why things happened. I've been able to forgive my parents and release the anger around my upbringing. And rather than being in victim mode, which I think I definitely was for quite a few years, I've come full circle and I've just used it as an experience which has really helped me to see the world in a different way, in a more positive way. What an extraordinary story. Denise Wise, yes, author, singer, songwriter, and now, of course, a lover of the TRNC to the extent that she is already planning a return in a few months. Now, if you go to our Facebook site, we will give you details on there of how to access the book and how to access her music. I think there's 11 tracks now you can hear on YouTube. And I just love that name, Sarah, of her band, Peaceful Cacophony. It's, it's, a, it's a masterstroke. It is, it is. And it sums up the world at the moment a little bit, doesn't it, as well, uh, in so many ways. And uh, I loved, I mean, loved, I mean, it's an extraordinary story about the Jehovah's Witness side of things. I mean, that was just a real insight, wasn't it, into into a religion, you know, that uh, that a lot of people follow. And yeah, very brave lady as well to sort of stick by her guns, you know, to sort of really follow her heart and do what she wanted to do and, and, and stand up, you know, and losing family as well along the way because of her her convictions and things. So really interesting. So I'm sure it'd be a fabulous book to uh, to read as well. So uh, well done for finding her in a coffee bar. <laughs> yeah, and as Roger said, if you do want to find out more details about the book and the music and of course where to listen to the podcast then do click on subscribe however you're listening to us so you'll know when the next one is out and you can find us on facebook and twitter talking round north cyprus you can get in touch anytime our email is trnc.podcast at gmail.com Thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Palmer. And I'm Roger Barr. We both appreciate your company very much. And we hope to talk to you again very, very soon. Shake my hair, wanna punch the air.